I think we know who the media want to win this election, and I don't think it's George Bush. The very same Rich Bond, however, also noted during the same election, quote, there is some strategy to it, he meant bashing the liberal media. If you watch any great coach, what they'll try to do is work the refs. Maybe the ref will cut you a little slack on the next one. Bond is hardly alone. That the so-called liberal media, from now on I'm going to call it the slickum, were biased against the administration of Ronald Reagan is an article of faith among Republicans. Yet James Baker, perhaps the most media savvy of all of them, owned up to the fact that any such complaint was decidedly misplaced. There were days and times and events we might have had some complaints, but in Ballas, I don't think we had anything to complain about, Baker told one writer. Patrick Buchanan, among the most conservative pundits and presidential candidates in Republican history, found that he could not identify any alleged liberal bias against him during his presidential candidacies. I've gotten balanced coverage and broad coverage. All we could have asked for, for heaven's sakes. We kid about the liberal media, but every Republican on earth does that, the aspiring American Ayatollah cheerfully confessed during the 1996 campaign. And even William Crystal, without a doubt the most influential Republican neoconservative publicist in America today, has come clean on this issue. I admit it, he told the reporter. The liberal media were never that powerful, and the whole thing was often used as an excuse by conservatives for conservative failure. In recent times, the right has ginned up its liberal media propaganda machine. Books by both Ann Coulter, a blonde bombshell pundit, and Bernard Goldberg, a former CBS News producer, have topped the bestseller list, stringing together a series of charges that, well, it's amazing neither one of them thought to accuse liberals of using the blood of conservative children for extra flavor in their soy milk decaf lattes. While extremely popular with the media they attack, both books are so shoddily written and researched, they pretty much refute themselves. The danger derives less from the author's respective allegations than the where there's smoke, there's fire impression they inspire. In fact, barely any of the major allegations in either book stands up to more than a moment's scrutiny. The entire case is a lie, and yes, in many instances, a slander. Although I abhor the methods of both authors, I do not feel they can go unanswered. Ideas, particularly bad ones, have consequences. The myth of the liberal media empowers conservatives to control debate in the United States to the point where liberals cannot even hope for a fair shake anymore. However immodest my goal, I aim to change that. I first met Ann Coulter in 1996 when we were both hired to be pundits on the new cable news station MSNBC. Still just a right-wing congressional aide, she had been hired without much apparent experience as a journalist, but with a mouth so vicious she made her fellow leggy blonde pundit Laura Ingraham look and sound like Mary Tyler Moore in comparison. Coulter was eventually fired when she attacked a disabled Vietnam veteran on the air, screaming, People like you caused us to lose that war! But this was just one of many incidents where she leapt over the bounds of good taste into the kind of talk that is usually reserved for bleachers or bar fights. In her columns, published in one of the most extreme of all conservative publications, Human Events, she would regularly refer to the President of the United States as a pervert, liar, and a felon, as well as a flim-flam artist. She termed the First Lady to be pond scum and white trash, and the late Pamela Harriman to be a whore. Coulter said all these things while appearing on the air in dresses so revealing they put one in mind of Sharon Stone in the film Basic Instinct. The greater Coulter's fame, the more malevolent grew her hysteria. In her 1998 book, High Crimes and Misdemeanors, The Case Against Bill Clinton, she wrote, In this recurring nightmare of a presidency, we have a national debate about whether he did it 
even though all sentient people know he did. Otherwise, there would be debates only about whether to impeach or assassinate. Such was the wisdom of the alleged constitutional scholar whose work George Will quoted on ABC's This Week. Shortly after 9-11, Coulter became famous again when she suggested in a column published by National Review Online after seeing anti-American demonstrators in Arab nations that we invade their countries, kill their leaders, and convert them to Christianity. Coulter's column was dropped by the magazine, but not because the editors objected to its content. Editor Jonah Goldberg explained, We ended the relationship because she behaved with a total lack of professionalism, friendship, and loyalty. Coulter had called the editors girly boys. Coulter remained unbowed. At a meeting of the National Political Action Conference, Coulter advised, We need to execute people like John Walker in order to physically intimidate liberals by making them realize they can be killed too. Otherwise, they'll turn out to be outright traitors. She also joked about the proposed murder of Transportation Secretary Norm Mineta. In her second book-length Primal Scream, published in the summer of 2002, Coulter compared Katie Couric of the Today Show to Eva Braun. She would later add Joseph Goebbels after Carrick challenged her in an interview. She termed Christy Todd Whitman, the former governor of New Jersey and current head of the Environmental Protection Agency, a dimwit and a birdbrain. Senator Jim Jeffers is a halfwit. Gloria Steinem is a termagant and a deeply ridiculous figure who had to sleep with rich liberals to fund Ms. Magazine. But the errors are even more egregious than the insults, and her footnotes are in many significant cases a sham. The good folks at the American Prospects weblog, Tapped, went to the trouble of compiling Coulter's errors chapter by chapter. The sheer weight of these, coupled with their audacity, demonstrates the moral and intellectual bankruptcy of a journalistic culture that allows her near a microphone, much less a printing press. If you doubt this, stop this program right now and log on to www.whatliberalmedia.com. Coulter's view of the U.S. media can be summed up as follows. American journalists commit mass murder without facing the ultimate penalty. I think they are retarded. In the New York Observer, published in one of the two cities attacked on 9-11, Coulter joked about how wonderful it would have been if Timothy McVeigh had blown up the New York Times building and murdered all of its inhabitants. Apparently nothing, not even the evocation, serious or not, of the mass murder of journalists could turn Coulter's love affair with the Slickum sour. For such comments, she is celebrated and rewarded. While promoting slander, Coulter was booked on Today, Crossfire, as both a guest and a guest host, Hardball, The Big Story with my friend John Gibson, and countless other radio programs. She was lovingly profiled in Newsday, the New York Observer, and the New York Sunday Times style pages, while enjoying a seat at the White House Correspondents' Association dinner as the guest of the Boston Globe. In the Wall Street Journal, a newspaper that had actually been destroyed by terrorists and whose reporters Daniel Pearl had been murdered by them, Melick Kalin defended her comments in Coulter-like fashion. He argued, We have been programmed to think that such impassioned outrage and outrageousness are permissible only on the left from counterculture comedians or exponents of identity politics. He compared Coulter's alleged humor to that of Lenny Bruce, Angela Davis, and the Black Panthers. Too bad, therefore, as Charles Pierce pointed out, the conservative media darling has yet to be arrested and jailed for what she said, like Lenny Bruce, prosecuted in federal court like Angela Davis, or shot to ribbons in her bed like the Black Panthers. Bernard Goldberg's book, Bias, suffers from many of the same weaknesses as Coulter's, 
though he lacks her colorful flair for murderous invective. Still, bias proved a smashing success. The New York Times publishing columnist Martin Arnold terms its sales to be, quote, the most astonishing publishing event of the past 12 months. Indeed, with its publisher claiming more than 440,000 copies in print, the book's sales figures alone are taken by many to be evidence of the truth of its argument. In many ways, the conservative side was hardly better served in its arguments by Goldberg than by Coulter. To those who do not already share Goldberg's biases, his many undocumented, exaggerated assertions have the flavor of self-parody rather than reasoned argument. Among them are such statements as, everybody to the right of Lenin is a right-winger as far as media elites are concerned. Opposition to the flat tax bias comes from the same, quote, dark region that produces envy and a seemingly unquenchable liberal need to wage class warfare. Roughly 72 of the 232 pages of the book are devoted to attacks or score settling with Dan Rather, whom Goldberg believes to have ruined his career. Much of the rest of bias consists of blasts at unnamed liberals who are accused of exaggerating data and manipulating the truth for their own purposes. How strange, therefore, that Goldberg seeks to make his case with statements about America's 10 trillion page tax code, tuition fees that are about the same as the cost of the space shuttle, and Lawrence Tribe's 10 million appearances on CBS News during the 1980s. During the course of over 220 pages of complaining, Goldberg never bothers to systematically prove the existence of liberal bias in the news or even define what he means by the term. About as close as we get is, I said out loud what millions of TV news viewers all over America know and have been complaining about for years, that too often Dan, Peter, and Tom and a lot of their foot soldiers don't deliver the news straight, that they have liberal bias, that no matter how often the network stars deny it, it is true. A few of his examples, such as those involving corporate self-censorship in the event that a certain segment might offend the audience or advertisers, or the preference for interviewees with blonde hair and blue eyes over people of color, actually serve to make the opposite case. With a keen eye to his likely audience of conservative talk show hosts and book buyers, the author simply assumes the existence of liberal bias in the media to be an undisputed fact. The same undocumented assumption characterized the conservative celebration of the book. The editors of the Wall Street Journal thundered, there are certain facts of life so long obvious they would seem beyond dispute. One of these, that there is a liberal tilt in the media. U.S. News & World Report columnist John Leo added, in praise of bias, that the reluctance of the news business to hold seminars and conducting investigations of news bias is almost legendary. Glenn Garvin, television critic of the Miami Herald, added that newsrooms are mostly staffed by political liberals are pretty much beyond dispute, although a few keep trying to argue the point. If, in an alternate universe, all of Goldberg's claims somehow turned out to be justified, the crux of his argument would nevertheless constitute a remarkably narrow indictment. Goldberg did not set out to prove a liberal bias across the entire media, nor even across all television news. He concerned himself only with the evening news broadcast, and not even with politics, but with social issues. Moreover, he appears to have done little additional research beyond recounting his own experiences and parroting the complaints of a conservative newsletter published by Brent Bozell's Media Research Center. It's hard to see what so excited conservative readers about the book. The broadcast in question represented a declining share of viewers' attention and increasingly an old and, at least from advertisers' standpoint, undesirable audience. It's likely that these particular news programs, if not their very format, 
will not survive the retirement ages of the current generation of anchors. Goldberg appears to consider this fact. However, he attributes the relative decline in viewership of the network nightly news to viewer unhappiness with the widespread liberal bias he claims to have uncovered. It's as if the Berlin Wall had come down, he explains, but instead of voting with their feet, Americans began voting with their remote control devices. They haven't abandoned the news, just the news people they no longer trust. How else, he continues, can we account for Bill O'Reilly and the O'Reilly factor on the Fox News channel? As far as I'm concerned, the three people Bill owes much of his success to are Tom Brokaw, Peter Jennings, and Dan Rather. You know, the logic of that argument is genuinely difficult to fathom. Goldberg is right to note that all three networks have seen a significant decline in their ratings for their news programs, but so has just about everything else on network television, due quite obviously to the enormous rise in viewer choice, the result of the replacement of a three-network television universe with one that features literally hundreds of choices on cable, satellite TV, and the Internet. Viewership on all four networks during the ratings period from September 24, 2001 to March 3, 2002, for instance, made up only 43% of TV watchers, compared with more than twice that percentage for just three networks two decades earlier. Still, the network news program's numbers remained impressive. The combined audience of the three network news programs is well over 30 million Americans and is better than 15 times the number tuning into Mr. O'Reilly. It is also more than 10 times the combined total primetime audience for Fox, CNN, and MSNBC. These ratios render Goldberg's logic entirely nonsensical. Had he or anyone related to the book had enough respect for his readers to bother with even 10 minutes of research, his claim would never have made it into print. Not all of Goldberg's arguments are quite as easy to disprove, but most are no less false or misleading. One of the claims that many critics and television interviewers have considered to be the strongest in the book was the one the author credited with having inspired his initial interest in the topic. It was not because of his conservative views, Goldberg wrote, but because of, quote, what I saw happen violated my liberal sense of fair play. Why, I kept wondering, do we so often identify conservatives in our stories, yet rarely identify liberals? Over the years, I began to realize the need to identify one side, but not the other, is a central component of liberal bias. There are right-wing Republicans and right-wing Christians, and right-wing radio talk show hosts. The only time we journalists use the term left-wing is if we're talking about a part of an airplane. Goldberg illustrates this point with an example taken from the Clinton impeachment proceedings during which, he claims, Peter Jennings identified senators as they came to sign their name in the oath book. According to Goldberg, Jennings described Mitch McConnell of Kentucky as a, quote, very...